Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Rondo Balmer says that as a historian of religion, when he listened to sports talk radio, he couldn't help but wonder how the fervor he heard there related to religious practice. And in his new book, Passion Plays, How Religion Shapes Sports in North America, he explores the origins and histories of big-time sports from the late 19th century to the present with anecdotes and insights into their ties to religious life. Houses of worship once railed against Sabbath-busting sports events, but uh, today most willingly accommodate Super Bowl Sunday. On the other hand, baseball, basketball's inventor James Naismith was an ardent follower of muscular Christianity and believed the game would help develop religious character. Today, those religious roots are largely forgotten. Randall Balmer is a prize-winning historian, leading public commentator on religion, author of more than a dozen books. He holds the John Phillips Chair in Religion at Dartmouth College. And thanks for joining us on the program today. My pleasure, Tom. Happy to be here. Appreciate you uh, being with us. Uh, you know, if, if people have read your other books, this is a, a departure. Um, <laughs> so uh, you you say this began as you discovered sports radio in the 1990s and, and in the, I guess, the capital of sports radio, as it is for many other things, New York City. Uh, tell me about discovering sports radio. Well, I actually remember when WNBC made a transition to become WFAN, and uh, I was initially kind of flabbergasted by this, that uh, sports talk hosts could sustain long, hours-long conversations about whether or not Joe Torrey should have lifted the starting pitcher with two outs in the bottom of the sixth inning. And what intrigued me was the passion that these callers and the sports radio hosts themselves brought to this uh, topic. And uh, I wanted to find out more about it. In fact, you write that um, Jerome from Manhattan, his I guess his doctor told him to stop calling in. He was so, so passionate. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, the, 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 there would be a kind of a, a rotation of regular callers, and uh, Jerome was one of the more entertaining. He would just, uh, I remember very clearly, he would be just just riled up about something and he would he was a Yankees fan and he was always proposing these trades that would be just preposterous where you know the Yankees would trade some sort of uh you know uh utility infielder for you know one of the great stars of the game in order to shore up the, the roster even more as if the Yankees needed it by the way <laughs> and you say at least for a time you became addicted uh you know you're a historian I don't know is this just a kind of a completely different thing uh that uh, you're listening to talk radio? Well, it, it was a bit different, I suppose. But uh, again, I, I just, I, I'm a bit, bit of a sports fan. I wouldn't call myself, uh, as, as these folks did, uh, big time or hardcore fans. But I'm, I'm a sports fan. And I guess part of what caught my interest is that uh, back in graduate school, one of my mentors, he was a colonial historian, one of the best colonial historians around. But he would also talk about sports, and he talked about sort of the symbolism behind each of the major team sports. And uh, I've been thinking about what he had to say for, I guess, 40 years now, and I began to try to formulate some ideas of my own, jumping off from his original insights. And that's, uh, I suppose, really what motivated the writing of the book. And, and you say, as you mentioned uh, just now, um, you want to figure out why sports invoke such peculiar passion. In fact, uh, you know, in the book, you, you go into parallels with religion. And I want to read this, uh, this quote, if I can find it here quickly. 
Um, you say you suggest in the book that uh, increased passion for sports in recent decades has for many displaced traditional expressions of religion. I think, you know, audience nods along to that. You, you, we see that. I think we do. And I think what both religion and sports have in common is that it kind of takes us out of the ordinary. It takes us out of our quotidian lives and exposes us to something that is, uh, you know, in, 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 in a very real sense, otherworldly. Uh, certainly, and I speak as a person of faith myself, but there are moments when I feel sort of transported. There's a, a, a a, a euphoria, if not an ecstasy, that I can experience in the world of religion. And I also, as a sports fan, experience it in various moments. doesn't happen very often, but when you see an athlete performing at his best, uh, Michael Jordan defying gravity on the basketball court, or Matthew Stafford uh, delivering one of his uh, laser passes to a, a receiver uh, those are moments of uh, when you it, they take them take you out of yourself and i think that's uh, maybe one of the things that uh, uh, sports and religion have in common aside from the you know the the, the others that people have often talked about that is uh, uh, sacred space that you have in in some sort of religious building a cathedral perhaps or you know the holy city of mecca or going to Fenway Park, or Wrigley Field, or Lambeau Field, or uh, one of the older stadiums, uh, you have a sense of sacred space. There's a sense of liturgy that surrounds sports events. Uh, I'm curious. I'm intrigued by the parallels between a uh, like a Catholic or an Episcopal uh, processional uh, with incense, for example. And uh, you have football players going onto the field with all sorts of pyrotechnics with flames and smoke and so forth. It's all part of the ritual surrounding sports that uh, is in many ways similar to religion. And then, of course, you have the parallel being uh, sainthood, uh, sainthood in religion. And in sports, of course, it's the Hall of Fame where you honor the, the uh, real stars of uh, one particular sport or another. You have a, a photograph in the book. This is near the end of the book, I think. Um, a, a procession. Montreal Canadiens fans are processing, I guess, to to the new stadium. Um, yes. And it uh, it does look very much like a religious procession. <laughs> it does. Yeah, that occasion was the uh, leaving of the forum behind for the new arena, hockey arena for the Montreal Canadiens, and that was the at that time it was called the Bell Center, and. Uh, it, it 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 was it, it, it was a procession. It was a religious procession with the banners and everything else. And also, they had uh, taken some shavings of the ice from the old arena and brought it to the new arena and sprinkled it on the new uh, surface in in the in the new arena. Uh, at, by that time, of course, the ice was uh, water, so that uh, replicates the whole. Uh, Christian notion of baptism, the sprinkling onto the new, onto the new arena. So, yeah, there are a lot of parallels, I think, between the two. Mm. You say in the book that you're not arguing that sports is a is a religion, and you you do say that you know sports cannot doesn't claim to forgive sins or grant salvation, right? Uh, precious little help in deciphering the mysteries of the universe. But as you just uh, talked about, what if you talk about a little more here? You know, sports does give people you know, some things that maybe they found in religion before. 
I think that's right. And I think it's, it's, a, it's an escape. And I'm not saying that to diminish a, a religion or, or sports for that matter. It, it's escape from the everyday, from the ordinary. And I think in particular for the demographic of white males over the last several decades, you've seen a real spike in sports fandom and sports devotion among that particular demographic. And I think as I tried to wrestle with that in, in the course of writing the book, it seemed to me that what sports offers is a kind of alternative universe that is very, very uh, straightforward. That is to say, something is either fair or it's foul. It's either inbounds or it's out of bounds. And you have in sports the very something very close to the proverbial level playing field. Now, uh, I want to acknowledge that access to that field might be determined in part by socioeconomic circumstances, race, gender, and all sorts of things. But I also think that the world of sports, at least at the collegiate and professional levels, probably comes closest, closer than anything else in our society to a perfect meritocracy. Because if you're not talented, especially at the upper, upper levels of the sport, you're not going to play. So it is a meritocracy in a way that the larger society is at least perceived by many people not to be any longer a meritocracy. And I think one of the reasons that sports has become so attractive to this demographic of white males is that they perceive, and I want to underline the word perceive here, they perceive the world as not being fair, that uh, other people are advantaged over them in one way or another because of gender or race or uh, whatever privilege, whatever it might be. And I think the world of sports offers an escape into an alternative enchanted universe where the rules are clear, they're impartially enforced. Uh, one of the examples I use in the book is that uh, a, a, a baseball batter who takes strike three from the umpire can't turn back and say, gee, ump, you know, I had a bad day. I didn't get much sleep last night. My sister's been diagnosed with cancer. Um, you know, give me a break. I, I deserve at least another strike. It, it, it doesn't happen in the world of sports, whereas in the larger world it might happen <laughs> in one way or another. Uh, different circumstances, obviously. But I think that's the, the, the real allure of the world of sports. And you think even about the fields. The fields are, for the most part, defined by geometricality. That is, by right angles. Uh, a basketball court, for example, or a football field, uh, a baseball field, with the exception of the outfield, which I think uh, might symbolize the unknown frontier at a time when baseball was uh, being developed, or the rounded, rounded edges of a hockey rink, I think, replicates the backyard ponds in the frozen north. But otherwise, sports is, is quite geometrical. And again, something is either foul or fair, fair uh, inbounds or out of bounds. And what do we say when a sports team wins? They won fair and square. Uh, so this, um, you say uh, overwhelmingly the, the fans are white males. They, they seek and the, they find in many cases this clarity, right? 
so I guess that would help explain the the antipathy toward Colin Kaepernick, right? He takes takes a knee. So, yes. He in, he injects yes. he injects that all of this complication of politics and uh, you know and race relations into this space, which I guess a lot of people go to 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 find clarity to escape from from the, that other stuff. Precisely, precisely. I think uh, you're absolutely right about that. And the other thing that, that that's going on here, Tom, I think, is that uh, we have this odd situation of white fans cheering for increasingly athletes of color, <laughs> but they do so as long as they're on the field or in the arena. But if they quote unquote step out of their lane and begin to talk about other issues that are affecting society. Colin Kaepernick is the best example of that, but we also had it recently with LeBron James and Kevin Durant and other athletes. Uh, the, the whole WNBA Atlanta Dream basketball team, for example, taking on the issue of racial equality. And once athletes step out of that lane, they become... Uh, something else, and uh, the object of, of, of real scorn, as we've seen with the Kaepernick case. And this is not new, by the way. It, uh, I cite an instance in the book with Bill Russell, the famous center for the Boston Celtics, uh, now recently deceased. And he led a boycott of African-American players during an NBA game in Lexington, Kentucky, because of uh, racial taunts and racial epithets. And there was a blowback even back then. And this is, I believe, 1961. And Bill Russell made a comment afterwards, I'm beginning to understand that we are being accepted as athletes, but not as full human beings. I'm paraphrasing his remarks there, but that was the gist of his remarks. So this is not anything new in particular, but you have this odd situation where fans of uh, who are overwhelmingly white cheering for athletes of color, but it has its limits. <laughs> mm-hmm. We'll likely return to issues of race in the conversation we go along. Um, I want to quote this from you. This is for Rando Balmer. By the way, we're talking with Rando Balmer. Passion Plays, How Religion Shapes Sports in North America is his latest book. Uh, so you write, it is at least arguable that the real locus of popular devotion in North America has shifted from the sanctuary to the stadium. We've been talking about that, of course. Um, And, you know, uh, some churches make accommodations. You write about a a church in Seattle. uh, Of course, you know, the Seattle Seahawks, when they're playing on the (laughs) East Coast uh, in Seattle, that's 10 a.m., 10 a.m., right? And so there's a church that the the pastor said, uh, okay, you come to church and we'll put on the game. Exactly. Or, uh, and, and one of the cases was they uh, entirely canceled the 10 o'clock uh, Sunday morning service and rescheduled it for 5 o'clock in the afternoon because they, they knew they couldn't compete with the Seahawks for an audience. And that's a, a kind of index of how I think, uh, as I said, passion has really shifted from the sanctuary to the stadium. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, uh, I, for one, have encountered this at church, too, that you <laughs> you can't, Super Bowl Sunday, you better not plan yep. anything, you know, church-wise <laughs> uh, for, for those times, uh, including all the warm-up stuff, right? Um, I wonder, uh, in, in your research, and you travel, just encounter things, um, you know, some churches making accommodation, right? 
can't beat them, join them, I guess. Uh, uh, is there pushback? Are there, you know, some religious leaders who are saying, hey, this is, this is going too far? Well, you did have pushback in the 19th century. There were strict Sabbatarian rules in local communities and even at the state level in many places where you know, athletic contests were not allowed to, to even take place on, on, a, on a Sunday. But that began to break down uh, in large part because owners needed to have uh, an audience. They needed fans in the stands in order to uh, support uh, the teams. And so they, they pushed uh, these local communities or state legislatures to do away with these uh, Sabbatarian bans. Yeah, I'm not aware of any real push on the part of religious leaders to uh, outlaw sports on Sunday any longer. I think it probably is a losing proposition <laughs> to, mm-hmm. to imagine that uh, sports has just too much a hold in our society, and particularly if we're talking about football, uh, or even uh, religious leaders trying to ban football because of its violent nature, which I think is undeniable. Uh, you, you just don't have that. It's a, it's a losing proposition. I think sports has uh, retained such a central place in our culture that any such effort would be uh, doomed from the start. Let's take a break. Uh, we're talking with Randall Balmer. He is a historian, author of uh, many books, leading public commentator on religion, author now of Passion Plays, How Religion Shapes Sports in North America. That is out and available now. Oh, when we come back, Rhonda Balmer, I want to have you tell me about muscular Christianity. That's a very interesting uh, part of this history, and it has to do, of course, with the development of sports. And there are interesting parallels uh, between the development of uh, the four major sports in North America and development of religion, history of religion. We'll, of course, jump into that uh, when we come back. More following this. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're speaking with historian Randall Balmer. His latest book is an interesting book, Passion Plays, How Religion Shaped Sports in North America. Uh, so, Randall Balmer, I wonder if you'd uh, re- recount for me, you, you talk about uh, muscular Christianity, how this is a reaction to a concern about, uh, some concern in some quarters about effeminization of, of a religion at a certain point. Yes, muscular Christianity was really a, a, a movement that began in Britain and then came across the, at the Atlantic to North America. And it took place in the midst of the Industrial Revolution. That is, uh, men are beginning now uh, to work outside the home, outside the farm, no longer engaged in subsistence living, and working more and more in factories or increasingly in sedentary office jobs. And so there was a great deal of concern on the part of uh, many people, including Protestant church leaders, that uh, men were not getting enough exercise, were not getting enough fresh air, and also, uh, simultaneously, they were staying away from the churches. That is to say, women were increasingly becoming the lifeblood of churches in the 19th century. Men were associating with fellow workers uh, more than with their families, as previously, and so forth. And so these various churchmen got together and Uh, really promoted what came to be known as muscular Christianity, trying to, in effect, uh, marry the faith or marry uh, religious uh, adherence with uh, athletic endeavors. And I suppose the best institutional example of that in the 19th century would be the Young Men's Christian Association, or the YMCA, that uh, tried to provide a place for young men coming into the cities during the Industrial Revolution 
and keeping them off the streets in part by providing uh, recreational activities for them. And in terms of uh, team sports in North America, what comes directly out of that is the invention of basketball by James Naismith, who was a student, uh, or actually an instructor, at the YMCA training school in Springfield, Massachusetts, which is now known as Springfield College. Um, I wonder, uh, you talk about uh, muscular Christianity, of course, uh, being behind uh, Young Men's Christian Associations, you mentioned. Church League Athletics, you write, Men in Religion, Forward Movement in the 1910s, and most recently you write, Promise Keepers. Muscular Christianity has a connection with Promise Keepers? Oh, yes. I think Promise Keepers is probably uh, one of the best examples of of muscular Christianity. And uh, again, for muscular Christianity, what uh, the proponents were drawing on were metaphors from the New Testament, particularly the writings of St. Paul, who talked about uh, putting on the full armor of God and doing battle against the forces of evil and, 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 and Satan. Also, you talked about running the race and finishing the course. So muscular Christianity drew on all of those metaphors. And so there have been a number of organizations through the years that have uh, capitalized on that. Uh, YMCA, as we said before, Salvation Army with the militarism would be another example of that. And in the 20th century, you had groups like the Fellowship of Christian Athletes or the or the uh, for, uh, for Catholics, the Catholic Youth Organization that organized basketball leagues and boxing tournaments. And then most recently, in the 1990s, the Promise Keepers movement, which was devised or was uh, started by a football coach, the head football coach at the University of Colorado, and he would gather these huge uh, assemblies of men in sports stadiums. So, again, this is uh, muscular Christianity, I think, through and through. I wonder if we could go through the, the four major sports. You restricted the book to the four major uh, sports, right, in, in North America. Could have talked about soccer yes. and some others. but um, And it's very interesting how how these sports, the origin of the sports, parallels and interconnects and braid with, with uh, religion. Uh, we can start uh, with uh, baseball. Um, you, and you, you say the mythical origins of baseball are literally too good to be true. Uh, it is, it is a beautiful story. Tell us first that story, which is untrue. <laughs> yeah, the sto- well, you know, myth is important to religion as well. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, uh, that's, that would be the most obvious connection with baseball. Uh, the, the mythological origins of the game of baseball have uh, Abner Doubleday showing up in Cooperstown, New York in, 19, in 1839, and uh, sketching out uh, the positioning of the players for this game of baseball that was uh, played that afternoon in Elihu Finney's uh, cow pasture uh, on one of these uh, lazy days of of summer in 1839. It's a wonderful story, and it's uh, had a lot of currency, but in fact, Abner Doubleday, who, by the way, never in his course of his 70-plus years ever took credit for inventing baseball, Abner Doubleday was at that time a cadet at West Point preparing for military service in the Civil War. Uh, He was not even close to Cooperstown, New York at the time. And Abner Graves, who is the person responsible for this uh, story, was in fact only five years old on the day that he supposedly witnessed 
Abner Doubleday inventing the game of baseball. So that's part of the mythology. But it says something about baseball and what it wants to be. That is to say that baseball uh, is a game that emphasizes uh, bucolic values. And one of the characteristics of baseball is that even as it was developed during the throes of the Industrial Revolution, baseball rejected the icon of industrialism, which is the clock. Baseball is the only game that is not governed by a clock. And if you think about baseball, even the runner circling the bases does so counterclockwise as though he's trying to subvert the passage of time. And the Cooperstown myth says something about baseball, that it wants to emphasize these sort of pre-industrial values. And you think about baseball fields. You fly into a major city, whether it's uh, uh, um, Atlanta or New York City or Chicago, and you go over the city and you see the concrete canyons, New York City certainly, concrete canyons that define the urban space. But in the midst of them, there are these occasional splotches of green, these green fields that may be parks, but very often those parks also include baseball fields uh, as a way of kind of protesting against the um, urbanism that has come to define American society. You wrote that uh, baseball emerged at a time when some observers worried that with the advent of the Industrial Revolution, American men were falling behind their English counterparts in manliness and athletic uh, development. I guess that's another factor. It is, yeah, and that's where the muscular Christianity comes in. And muscular Christianity really fuels all of these sports in many ways And uh, because uh, there's a lot of encouragement in the 19th century for uh, men in particular to become uh, physically active uh, in order to try to uh, banish this uh, the onset of... Uh, too much feminism in, in, in society. And in fact, historians have, have written uh, you know, quite, quite persuasively about the feminization of American culture in the 19th century. And athletics, at least in part, is trying to address that. You uh, write about three paradoxes in, uh, in baseball. First is the, the paradox that the game with apparent roots in Americans, America's emerging premier metropolitan area nevertheless celebrates bucolic virtues. That's very true. You, you just talked about that, the large parks, you know, the, a lot of green. Right. Exactly. Yes. And I've forgotten the other two. Uh, let, have to let's, yes, I will remind <laughs> you. Yes. Uh, second paradox you just talked about, the paradox that a game born in the teeth of the Industrial Revolution nevertheless flouts industrialism, industrialism's central organizing principle, regulation of time. Uh, you know, the fact, I hadn't noticed that. The, yeah, the runners run counterclockwise, as you mentioned, kind of flying in the face <laughs> yeah. of, of time, right? By the way, that's that's got baseball kind of in trouble in today's short attention span oh, world, right? Ab- absolutely. <laughs> yeah, that's one of the real crises facing baseball is that, uh, especially in an Internet age, uh, baseball is uh, indeterminate in its length, and uh, that's a real problem, I think. Yeah. Final paradox, the game that boasts its putative indigenous origins nevertheless embodies in many ways replicates the experience of immigrants and outsiders. That's an interesting paradox. Yes, I think in in many ways baseball is the quintessential immigrant game. It's the only game where the defense controls the ball and it's the object of the offensive player, that is the batter, 
to disrupt the defense's control of the ball. And he comes to the plate outnumbered 9-1, to much the way that the immigrant came to North America. And there are three islands of safety, only three islands of safety out there in that hostile territory. And, of course, the greatest triumph is to return home. And one of the hallmarks of baseball also is that immigrants, or at least outsiders, have uh, always excelled at the game of baseball. In the 19th century, it was new immigrants from places like Germany or Italy or uh, Scandinavia. And in uh, the 20th and 21st centuries, you had, of course, African Americans finally breaking the color barrier with Jackie Robinson in 1947. But also, more recently, players from the uh, Caribbean, particularly the Dominican Republic, and now uh, an increasing number of Asian players who are playing the game of baseball. So it's an immigrant game in that that it replicated their experience coming to this new and alien uh, territory and uh, trying to make their place and and, and to return home in triumph if they could. Of course, race uh, plays a part in all these uh, sports and all this history, right? Um, I wonder if you talk about one parallel that that you mentioned in the book, religion and uh, sport here, uh, is the is Brant Rickey, of course, general manager of the Brooklyn Dodgers, instrumental in uh, in segregating the or, or in desegregating the game. I didn't yep. know he was a devout Methodist that, that yep. apparently played a part in his in his attempts here, efforts here. Yes, yes, he was. And uh, he was also a, a big fan of Abraham Lincoln, of course, uh, which uh, is certainly uh, logical given what he did for the game of baseball. But he was also a Sabbatarian, and he refused to, to watch even his own teams play on Sunday because he had, <laughs> he had Sabbatarian scruples that uh, wouldn't allow him to do that. But uh, it's very clear that, that uh, Ricky's motivation in desegregating major, major league baseball was in part based on his uh, religious principles. Mm. Let's take another break. We'll come back and uh, treat briefly the other three uh, sports as we go along here. Randall Balmer, our guest, is author most recently of Passion Plays How Religion Shapes Sports in North America. We'll have more following this. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We've reached our last segment with Randall Balmer, author most recently of Passion Plays, How Religion Shaped Sports in North America. By the way, you can find Randall Balmer at his website, randallbalmer.com. Uh, usually writes on uh, history and religion, uh, this time sports and religion. Um, he is a prominent commentator as well. Uh, so, Randa Balmer, I want to talk about football next. Um, this quote jumped out at me. Andrew Dixon White, president of Cornell, 1874, refused permission <laughs> for his students to travel to Cleveland. This is his quote. I will not permit 30 men to travel 400 miles merely to agitate a bag of wind, which is a, that's a great quote. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of opposition to football in the 19th century on the part of uh, college presidents in particular. And uh, they understood the, the violence of the game, and it was. It was a terribly violent game in the 19th century. Of course, you didn't have the protective equipment you have now, but also the rules allowed for a lot of, uh, a lot of violence. And, in fact, I don't think I've run across an account of a 19th century game of football that did not use the word brutal or brutality in its description of the game. It was quite violent. 
In fact, uh, you you write about this. I had not known about this incident. Greg Page yeah. um, broke the color barrier in Southeastern Conference. He he died uh, in a, a, what after a practice. After practice, yeah, Greg, Greg Page uh, was an African American young man who was recruited by the University of Kentucky. So he really did break the color barrier in the SEC, the Southeastern Conference. But in a practice, one of the early practices, his teammates piled on him. He was paralyzed and uh, tragically died 38 days later. So uh, the the story of the desegregation of uh, football. Uh, it, it, it's a mixed bag because in professional football, actually, this was, this was the first major sport to desegregate. But uh, at the college level, there were a lot of uh, pretty ugly incidents uh, related to the desegregation of college football. Uh, you have a quote here, uh, 1898, uh, a, a gentleman describes his friend as describing football as the most spiritual of all games. Yes. It, uh, it, it, I think it's less obvious in some ways with football, but again, if we come back to muscular Christianity, the whole idea of uh, the, the metaphors of militarism and athleticism, and certainly with uh, football, you have militarism. And in fact, football was uh, developed really in its, into what is it's, is pretty close to its form, uh, to its present form. It was developed in the years following the Civil War by the sons, brothers, and nephews of Union Army soldiers in northeastern schools, Rutgers, Princeton, Yale, Harvard, Penn, and so forth. And so it, it is a military game because it's a game that is centered around, it's, it's built around the conquest and the defense of territory, much like the battlefields at Gettysburg or Antietam or Chickamauga, or wherever you might want to think about in, in the Civil War. And what's striking to me is the military language that was used in the 19th century to describe the game of football, particularly its violence and so forth. But even today, we use military language in, in the game of football. The announcer very often will talk about the quarterback as the field general who unleashes long bombs or bullet passes. Uh, you have the, the language of trench warfare, the uh, confrontation between the offensive line and the defensive line. You have uh, even uh, the military language of training camp or scouting. Uh, those are all military terms that have been used and are still used to describe the game of football. And then, of course, you have the violence itself, which is uh, scripted into the game of football, uh, unlike the other four major sports. Yeah, you you mentioned that. I want to follow up on that briefly. Uh, the violence is scripted right in, right? Um, and it is a violent game. We 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 had the recent incident with uh, Tua Tungvaloa, right? And the and his yes. that that scary scary moment in the recent game uh, where he obviously yes. had head trauma. Um, yeah, but football is obviously the most popular sport. Um, do you, do you think the two are connected? I think they are. I teach a course here at Dartmouth called Sports Ethics and Religion. We had a conversation about that class the other day. And I asked, is football America's game? And certainly in terms of uh, you know, the metrics of fan uh, devotion and so forth, it is America's game. But I think it's also America's game because of the violence that is a part of the game of football. And I think any objective observer has to acknowledge that we are a violent society. Uh, we have all these uh, terrible, tragic mass 
mass uh, shootings that uh, come up on the news uh, with some regularity. Uh, but also, if you look at our history, particularly the uh, so-called Indian Wars in the 19th century, the push to the western coast to uh, displace Native Americans, um, often violently and and, uh, and fatally, uh, this is part of who we are. And I think we Americans are attracted to violence. Now, you can argue that football... Uh, provides a kind of vicarious violence, and maybe because of the violence we watch on the field, it makes us less violent in day-to-day life, and I don't know how you would assess that sort of thing to begin with, but I think that's probably a possibility as well. But I think one of the reasons that football is so popular is that uh, we are attracted to the violence of the game. Definitely want to discuss hockey. I learned a lot in the the, uh, the chapter in hockey. I know we need to let you go in about five minutes or so. Um, so, so just to in, get us into hockey, I want to read another great quote. I think this is you. If there's any town east of, say, Toronto that does not claim to be the birthplace of hockey, I should like to know about it. I guess every <laughs> every every town in every eastern town in in Canada claims to be the birthplace of hockey. Uh, I, I what I learned in the, in the book, uh, very fascinating. There was a conscious effort by Canadians once they were forming their their nation, kind of separating from uh, Great Britain, right? Uh, that we need our own sport, right? To to yes. <laughs> to epitomize our own national identity. I guess they chose lacrosse, which then turned into hockey. Is that that right? Yeah, it's exactly right. Yes, uh, uh, there was a dentist in Montreal by the name of George Beers, and uh, he was a huge uh, fan of lacrosse. He was what he would watch the Native Americans. Of course, that's where the game came from. Native Americans play lacrosse outside Montreal, and he was fascinated by the game. And uh, what I find interesting in terms of religious dimension here is that Beers was a Presbyterian. And as you probably know, uh, the catchphrase for Presbyterians is that they have to do everything decently and in order. And so he he applied that to the game of of lacrosse because he was watching these these huge uh, teams playing this game. And as he described it, first of all, there were no boundaries to the field which was true of a lot of uh, so-called mob games before these four games began to uh, to uh, develop. But he also said that there was, were as many as a 1,000 players on each team. Now, I think that's probably an exaggeration, but nevertheless, there were a lot of players. So he said lacrosse is a good game, but it needs some rules, <laughs> like a good Presbyterian. So he, he delimited the, the field, uh, created boundaries for the for the game, but also limited the number of players on the team and established rules for the game. And then at the same in the same year, as you pointed out, with the uh, as the Canadian Confederation, 1867, he made the appeal in a uh, an article in one of the Montreal papers. He said Canadians need their own game, and cricket is not going to do. It's a British game. Uh, it's too, um, uh, I want to say prissy, he didn't use that word, but that's what he was uh, trying to say. Uh, we need a game that's rough and tumble, a game that uh, comports with our Canadian character. And lacrosse is that game. So that is how lacrosse, and then of course it evolved quickly thereafter into ice hockey, became Canada's game. And uh, it, it did, yeah, as you say, evolved into Canada's game. And it very much epitomizes, I guess, uh, elements, at least, of the national culture. It, 
does. You know, you have the cold hockey rink, of course, which uh, there's a lot of cold up in, in Canada. Uh, you kind of have this vast, untamed wilderness. And what, one of the things I find fascinating about hockey is that uh, what happens, at least at the professional level, is that when there's some sort of, uh, of uh, uh, tiff between the teams, you know, they they take care of it right there. You know, the, the, the players, you know, fight it out quite literally. And only later, only after the fight, do the referees step in and try to create order. Well, that certainly happens, I'm sure, in many frontier areas in Canada where you don't have the Royal Canadian Mounted Police on every uh, corner like you do in, in New York City or some other place where uh, there's a kind of frontier justice that uh, is characteristic of Canada. It's also characteristic of hockey. And the other thing uh, about uh, hockey that I, I try to, to argue is that uh, the handling of penalties in the early days of hockey, uh, if there was an infraction, players would be given a, a like a parking ticket or a fine. And as Irish players and French-Canadian players began playing hockey in greater numbers in the 1930s. That's when they had the introduction of the penalty box, which I argue is very similar to a Catholic confessional, a place where you go to uh, both acknowledge your sins and become penitent for your sins, and then once you are rehabilitated after your penalty is over, you're allowed to rejoin the game. And I found that to be one of the more fascinating elements of hockey. Uh, and I'll just mention this. Uh, we're, we're just about out of time here, but uh, you, you, you're right uh, in, in a caption here. Uh, hockey night in, in Canada. You know, the, the iconic announcer, Saturday nights, he was, he was essentially calling Canadians to, uh, don't put it this way, to worship, right? To, to, yep. to come participate <laughs> together. There's another parallel. I think so, yes. Uh, that, that's really a communal experience for Canadians, uh, Hockey Night in Canada. And uh, it, it's still hugely popular. And uh, it's not very dissimilar, I think, from a call to worship you would have in a, in a church that's calling the community together for uh, a common purpose or a common interest. Uh, so finally, just a, a minute left here. What, uh, what's your takeaway from this discussion, these parallels between history of religion and history of sports? Well, I think in many ways, as I, we talked about earlier, I think the sanctuary, the stadium is really has displaced the, the sanctuary for a lot of reasons in our society. But it's also important, I think, to understand the connection between religion and sports uh, with muscular Christianity, with the ways in which uh, sports really, in many ways, replicates uh, religious experience. Uh, and I think it's it's it is an alternate universe that I think a lot of us find attractive. And I say that as a sports fan, um, I, I like sports as well. Uh, probably not the same level of passion as as many other fans, but uh, I find it uh, very intriguing and, and very inviting. And uh, there is a kind of religious devotion that is uh, that surrounds team sports these days, and uh, I, I, it's it's one of the characteristics of our. Our time. Rhonda Balmer is author of uh, many books, and most recently, Passion Plays How Religion Shapes Sports in North America. That's out and available now. Rhonda Balmer, thank you so much. Pleasure. Same here, Tom. Thank you. 
And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening to Access Utah.